Hi, I'm Melissa Roach with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This week, host Am Johal is joined by critical theorist Alberto Toscano, a UK-based scholar who is currently a visiting faculty member at the Digital Democracies Institute in SFU School of Communication. They speak about Alberto's work on fanaticism, trends in authoritarianism, racial capitalism, and what Alberto calls late fascism. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. Very excited to have Alberto Toscano with us, who has recently joined us in Vancouver on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh people. Uh, Welcome, Alberto. Thank you very much for uh, the very nice invitation. Alberto, I'm wondering if we can start with you introducing yourself a little bit. Well, I'm, uh, I suppose, a critical theorist of sorts. I trained in as much as you can call it training in philosophy and pretty much did all of my graduate studies in the UK, where I lived until about a year ago when I uh, moved here to Vancouver. And so I spent the past 17 years or so teaching at uh, Goldsmiths, University of London, which I'm still affiliated with in the School of Sociology. And uh, a little bit more recently founded with my friend and colleague, Julia Eng, a center for the study of philosophy and critical thought, and have been running that for a few years. And I suppose aside from my um, academic pedagogical work and the like, I've, I've done quite a bit of work as a translator. And I suppose uh, in the past years, more maybe even as a kind of editor for the series that I uh, run for uh, Seagull Books out of Calcutta and London. And yeah, so that's a sketch of sorts. <laughs> Yeah, I've got so many questions I want to ask you, but I'll start with your first book, The Theater of Production, Philosophy and Individuation Between Kant and Deleuze. It came out in 2006, and I'm wondering if you can sketch out where the project sort of began and what you were trying to do. Right. Well, since that was really my uh, doctoral work, it's kind of somewhat uh, prehistoric for me, I suppose. <laughs> And in fact, like many people, I suppose, in finishing my PhD, I initially had this somewhat phobic reaction, right? Uh, you you don't want to look at this stuff ever again, and so on. And actually, the <laughs> the book came out because I, I realized without the um, aid of a monograph, getting gainful employment was going to be a bit more of an upward <laughs> journey than I expected. So in any case, that's what it was. And I guess, I don't know, maybe it's it's easier to describe rather than in terms of the very dense philosophical kind of excavation archaeology that the book tries to do, maybe in terms of the kind of milieu it came out of. So the University of Warwick had a quite distinctive, uh, I suppose, tradition of work and research in continental philosophy, and especially a lot of people, you know, friends, colleagues, comrades of mine, working on uh, French philosophy and on the writings of Gilles Deleuze in particular. And I guess at the time, also, there were a lot of people in my cohort, uh, you know, stranded in this business park in the Midlands where we were doing philosophy, much in severe isolation from the outside world, I suppose, who were very interested in making links to various strands of materialist thinking in the cognitive sciences and the philosophy of biology and in, you know, domains like that. So uh, I suppose the the book is really an effort to try to get to grips with, in a sense, Deleuze's understanding of what he called individuation or, you know, the processes 
that uh, the often unrepresentable or you know molecular to use his, his kind of language processes that lead to the creation of or the genesis of individuals in a way that would not pass through you know dominant I suppose Western philosophies of subjectivity and representation and so on. So the the, the book is a is an effort to kind of try to reconstruct some of the sources also of this way of thinking. So to look at uh, Nietzsche's writings on life and biology, to look at the pragmatist tradition and Charles Sanders Peirce, for instance, and how they wrote about habit. To look at a French philosopher of technology called Gilbert Simondon, who was a big source for Deleuze, and to kind of try to reconstruct this sort of this different way of thinking about the relationship between philosophy and the life sciences, philosophy and conceptions of the organism and, and so on and so forth. But again, this is a very distant <laughs> reconstruction on, on my part, as I pretty much, I mean, I, I maintain a kind of interest in the listen part and certainly in the broader range of French philosophy, but that particular angle, which in many ways was insulated, right, from uh, socio-political or socio-economic concerns is one that, you know, I sort of left behind. But it was, you know, it was an excellent, if rather monastic apprenticeship, right, in in ways of thinking critically and in, in understanding this kind of tradition. But I do think if I hadn't been, again, in this, in this business park in the Midlands, surrounded by some very intense and hard-drinking folk, and living instead in an urban space with, you know, political activity or what have you, I would have done very different work for what it's worth. <laughs> and later on, you did a book on fanaticism, on the uses of an idea in 2010. I had a chance to read it maybe five years after it, it came out. It's a wonderful book. Oh, thank you. Wondering if you can talk a little bit about where that project began. Yeah, that's still a lot, a lot closer uh, to, to my concerns. And I suppose the very concrete or immediate source of it was, of course, the wake of the invasion of Iraq. And of course, the not the resurgence, because it had been, you know, around for, for long, very long in many of its mutations, but the intensification, let's say, of a kind of discourse of geopolitical enmity, of Islamophobia, of a, you know, recombinant kind of Orientalism that was, was used in many ways to package the war and occupation of Afghanistan and, and Iraq and so on. Now, what I was particularly struck or what I really wanted to target, and it's in many ways, even though, you know, it takes a detour through all sorts of uh, seemingly very distant things like, you know, millenarian peasant revolts and, you know, Freud's writings on religion or what have you. I mean, the real target was a certain intellectual and even to some extent kind of journalistic response to what was happening, which was based on identifying religious extremism or the subjective mentality of religious extremism and its kind of supposedly automatic consequences in, you know, mass political collective violence, terrorism, etc., as the real source, right, of, of all of the troubles that we were experiencing. And, and it was really around the circulation of this notion of fanaticism that I thought one could do some work which was both intellectually and historically, you know, stimulating in its own right, but also had a kind of critical purpose, critical purchase also vis-a-vis -vis the present moment. And the curious thing is that I'd actually encountered the philosophical notion of fanaticism when, back when I was at Warwick in a very different context, looking at 
the German idealist philosopher Schelling and his philosophy of nature. And actually, fanaticism, as I then try to trace in the book, became a very significant notion in the context of the German Enlightenment and German idealism and around the responses to religious thinking and religious modes of understanding the world in that kind of, you know, late 18th century, early 19th century moment, right? So you have you find kind of theories of fanaticism in Kant, in Schelling, in Hegel, and, and so on. And I thought that that could be an interesting resource for thinking critically, you know, through positions that, of course, philosophically terribly unsophisticated and crude uh, that you might encounter in op-eds by the likes of, I don't know, Michael Ignatiev, Timothy Gartanash, or, you know, the kind of critique of religion by the likes of Dawkins or Sam Harris or what have you, but to try and get at that notion and use it to sort of unravel, right, the sources of this thinking, and then perhaps allow us to think, you know, quite differently about the relationship between politics, belief, violence, and one notion which then remained significant for me as well, which was the notion of abstraction, right? In many ways, the fanatic, at least within European philosophy, was perceived both as somebody who had this extremely intense and violent conviction, but also someone whose conviction was abstract, right? Uh, So this is the way in which Hegel, for instance, brought together in a very bizarre kind of short circuit the supposed fanaticism of Islam or or, of of the very figure of Muhammad and the fanaticism of the French Jacobin revolutionaries, right? So one of the things I try to trace is, is these, you know, these curious analogies and short circuits, right? Where for a while people would speak about communism as the Islam of the 20th century, only to be then relayed by people closer to us speaking of Islam as a communism of the 21st, right? So it was this kind of, these kinds of moves that I was trying to sort of engage in a kind of critical philosophical history of, but it was very much as a way of, yeah, thinking through the social, ideological and and political consequences of that moment of the early 2000s, really. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting. There's these figures from the right, like Carl Schmitt, who wrote The Partisan. There's a lot of philosophical debates, particularly in the French Jean-Luc Nancy and, and others around friendship and community. So there was parts of uh, reading through that. Some similar themes came out of it, but the use of the word fanatic as well as something separate from those as well. Yeah. And one of the things that I also, uh, and I still think is, is at least one of the areas of the book that one of the kind of discoveries of sorts for me, right? Not, not for others necessarily that came along with the book was also the way in which this pejorative discourse of fanaticism had been mobilized in the 19th century in two very significant contexts that are still with us, right? So the context of colonial counterinsurgency, specifically in the first half of the 19th century in India, or something in, you know, in, in, uh, under the British Empire, something that comes out quite significantly in a lot of writings of subaltern studies historians, actually, where, you know, one can also trace this kind of counter history of fanaticism. And the other one was, of course, the identification of radical immediatist abolitionism in the run up to the Civil War. And indeed, also, I guess, in the context of radical reconstruction as a figure of fanaticism, right? So uh, whether it's in the slave revolt of Nat Turner, or in the attempted revolution against slavery uh, instigated by John Brown, or indeed even in the you know nonviolent writings and agitation of Wendell Phillips or or Garrison and so on, there was this idea right of the abolitionist as a fanatic. So I was very struck right by this strange discourse where somehow the same figure could cover Muhammad, Robespierre, 
you know, John Brown, peasant insurgencies in India, Lenin, and so on and so forth, right? So I thought there was something quite symptomatic there that then might allow a counter history to draw a different thread between these moments and these figures. Now, you did a book with uh, Jeff Kinkle, Cartographies of the Absolute, also really interesting and unique book. I actually remember the discussion around a very obscure 1981 film called uh, Wolf and in there, which I forgot that I had watched like so long ago, I'd forgot that it existed. <laughs> and it was an interesting way to bring that back into circulation. But wondering if you can share a little bit about that project. It was definitely really yeah. very different than any other things I've read in that zone. So thanks. I mean, that project was a very different one. I mean, in its own way, like very much incited uh, and, and kind of crystallized around an event, right? So the 2007 and eight credit crunch and global financial crisis. And it was the sort of confluence of trying to think through that and then and then doing some teaching work around film, visual representation, and so on and so forth that kind of gave birth to that project with this friend and former student of mine, Jeff Kinkle, who'd written a very, was writing or had just finished a very interesting uh, doctorate on the late writings of the French situationist uh, Guy Debord. Yeah, initially, it was a kind of somewhat extemporaneous thing where we just were talking about various cultural artifacts of the late 90s and early 2000s. You know, The Wire, we, we kind of got into um, uh, writing about that together. And then we eventually a friend commissioned us to write something for Film Quarterly, reviewing right fictional and documentary films that had in some sense or another, responded to the financial crisis. And that was the kind of germ cell, the source for then ranging in a much broader way through logistics, uh, photography, touching to some extent on some uh, novels like those of William Gibson, and then, you know, landing on this, you know, film that both Jeff and I, I think separately, had developed a sort of curious obsession with, which was Wolfen incidentally made by the same director as a Woodstock film. So it's an interesting periodizing object in its own right. And more recently, apparently somebody is making a documentary about Wolfen and wanted to interview Jeff and myself. So I hope that still happens because it's kind of extremely, it's an extremely bizarre artifact, that film, as we try to draw out. But yeah, so the idea was to then, yeah, bring all of these films, these, you know, at times kind of very symptomatic films, right? That somehow sought to map the crisis and to rethink some of the debates about the representation of capital coming out of, you know, broadly kind of Marxist literary criticism and specifically out of the work of Frederick Jameson and try to, you know, see to what extent those kind of frameworks were still apt for thinking the present and then engage in a kind of semi-live dialectical criticism about things that were being produced at the time, you know, both in a more artistic context and in a more popular demotic one, so to speak. But it's possibly the most fun thing I have written as well. <laughs> it was uh, after the rather demanding immersions into text of those two previous books, there was something liberating about thinking through present materials as they were being produced and also doing it with somebody else, right? Which I think also frees you up in ways that solitary scholarship does not. I totally agree. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your translation work. I've done some of my doctoral work related to Aline Badu's work, very complex and complicated. And wondering if you can talk about your relationship to translation, maybe uh, starting with Badu's work, how you came upon uh, some of that work. So how I came upon the work was in bookshops. <laughs> visiting my parents when they were living in Geneva. And I had very 
rusty school French, but Badiou, I think, 97, had published this book on Deleuze. And I had in my undergraduate degree, which was at the New School, uh, Eugene Lang College at the New School in New York, Deleuze's work, specifically, actually, his book on Nietzschean philosophy. Unsurprisingly, I got into Nietzsche in my late teens. <laughs> and that got me into philosophy. So it's not an entirely predictable experience. But the interest in Deleuze then drew me to this book. You know, initially, it's kind of short, very peculiar, and both polemical and curiously sympathetic book on Deleuze. It was published, I guess, shortly after Deleuze's death. So I think Badiou's book is 97 and Deleuze died in 95, I think. And it struck me as like the only really interesting response, right? The only really interesting critique. And it was the, I think it was the first text that was not a kind of text of Deleuzean commentary or exposition, but rather a critique that really stimulated me or that I found really important. And so then basically at the time, nothing was, you know, translated. So I think whilst I was doing my master's degree got a copy of that formidable but formidably dense book that is being an event in French and worked through that. And then we had this journal, Plea, a uh, very Deleuzean title, The Fault, uh, the Work Journal of Philosophy, which I worked on for a while. And what we did there was a kind of graduate student scheme of sorts, where basically we produced these issues where half the issue was translations of text by, you know, super famous French, Italian, German philosophers that nobody could get. So obviously people wanted this, you know, uh, a journal somewhat, uh, you know, some is that DIY journal produced out of this campus in Coventry. Uh, and then, of course, like the other half of the articles were things that we'd written, right? So... <laughs> which is a bit cheeky, but it worked very well. And that was a very, very interesting and very formative experience. I think I reviewed uh, something by Badiou and also translated uh, some articles. In fact, a chapter of the century, which I then ended up translating as a whole uh, later on. And in fact, it was on the back of that. I think my supervisor at the time, Keith Hansel Pearson, was in touch with Badiou for some reason. So he sent them a copy of this. And then I got in contact with Badiou. So that was also part of the reason of how to access the translation. So initially, I suppose it was a matter of both trying to work out you know, my own ideas about, you know, this very interesting, uh, you know, philosopher who was a kind of novelty within the domain of at least the English, uh, English, English language reception of French philosophy, you know, and then also, I guess it's, it, it is a kind of form of tried and true form of uh, philosophical apprenticeship, or right, you know, translating, sometimes editing and, and introducing though in the case of Badiou, who I, I have written, you know, quite a few things on, you know, most of them, both critical and, and sympathetic, it was really, I was more kind of interested in the craft of translation rather than in having these, you know, sort of uh, bloated uh, critical editions in which I'd introduced all my own thoughts about Badiou. I kind of did that elsewhere. I actually really like his writing. So I think, you know, I mean, there was something kind of satisfying just about the craft of translation and the sense that when you'd gotten it right, you could, you could tell it was right. And he writes in very different registers, you know, at times with great force and simplicity, probably coming out of, you know, long history of writing, you know, Maoist and post-Maoist pamphlets with lots of numbers and dictums and axioms and the mathematical clarity, but then also these super complex syntax that comes from being a commentator on Jacques Lacan or on the poetry of Mallarmé and so on. So it's, it's really like, it is a great you know, I think it was a great training school for uh, for translation. And then more recently, instead as a kind of different as part of this project to try to make a lot of uh, Italian literary and critical and theoretical thought previously passed over available to an English language audience with uh, via Siegel, via this list that I run, then I've done a lot of translation more in that vein, which is different because some of it is actually a little bit more like literary translation. And in fact, I'm doing or will be doing probably my first like entirely non- <laughs> 
theoretical bit of translation, which is this wonderful diary journal by a partisan leader, uh, Pietro Chiodi, who was a philosopher, but writes this political journal as a partisan. He was, in fact, ironically, Heidegger's translator into Italian. Tells, in fact, a very peculiar anecdote about being arrested by either the Gestapo or the German authorities. And they ask him how he knows he's such good German. And he says he's translated Heidegger. And of course, they have no idea who Heidegger is. So they think he's some kind of communist, which is, you know, terribly ironic. (laughs) In translating Badu, did you have to really become an expert in set theory and the mathematical Ah, that's that's tricky. That's a very tricky matter. I did. And and in fact, my task was even worse because whilst I I could, I I managed, you know, through hard slog to get to grips, at least at the time with, you know, and I think, but he was actually very good in his own peculiar way. It's like a very good pedagogue, right, about how he presents this sort of set theoretical armature to his whole book. But the book that the big tome, the big treatise that I translated, Logics of Worlds, goes into this even more formidably contorted bit of mathematics, i.e. category theory, which I had planned, of course, to autodidactically school myself in, but the demands of lecturing and writing and having my own projects, including very much the fanaticism one kind of got in the way. So I did as much as I as I could, but no, <laughs> I can't say that I mastered category theory, but I hope that the, I have not heard of any blunders that were generated by that. I think the the peculiar thing about the book is that actually, unlike being an event where I think the mathematical or the set theoretical structure and the argument are woven together much more closely, I think in Logics of Worlds, it's a bit more of a compartmentalized book. So there's actually a lot of, you know, there's rather more formalism in it. But a lot of that, you can cut and paste the uh, formulas and the equations without necessarily having fully worked them out because the text doesn't necessarily work, you know, work on that. On that level. I was going to ask you about the edited volume you're involved with, the Italian uh, difference between nihilism and, and biopolitics. Yeah, so that was done with a very good friend of mine, uh, Lorenzo Chiesa, who also did his doctorate at Warwick and who's a specialist, amongst other things, of uh, Jacques Lacan, has written a great uh, few you know, brilliant books on him, but also is, you know, was working on Italian thought, philosophy, critical theory, and the like. And there was a short book, a kind of pamphlet by Negri, uh, Antonio Negri, called The Italian Difference. This was before, a few years before, and I think it in some sense instigated the broader project uh, of trying to forge this kind of thing called Italian theory by some people, including by the philosopher Lovell Desposito, who wrote this interesting book called Living Thought, where he goes through, especially, you know, the likes of Giambattista Vico and, uh, and Gramsci and so on, and Gentile and Croce and so, so yeah, that was a slightly kind of extemporaneous thing of trying to build a volume around that intervention by Negri and then making some strands, right, of, of Italian thought known. I mean, there's something, I think, interesting, but, you know, with any tradition of thought that's not originally in the English language or even in the English language, but that is happening in a totally different context, right? Like the Indian subcontinent or elsewhere. The patterns and protocols through which stuff circulates or travels, gets translated, I find quite fascinating. And so in the case of um, Italian thinking in general, but, you know, also domains like literary criticism, philosophy, Marxism. There's been very peculiar histories, right? So figures that are very significant in Italy are entirely unknown in the English-speaking world, but sometimes figures who were not 
that major or that central, even though they might be very interesting within Italy, because somebody on the outside or some, you know, gatekeeper or intellectual producer are very of great significance, say something like the New Left Review is right, is a very interesting case. So someone like the, you know, who I think is a fantastic figure, this philologist and Marxist theorist, Sebastiano Timpanado, was, you know, massively translated by the New Left Review. Things of his were published by Verso, etc. He ended up being considerably better known in a kind of English context than in an Italian one to some extent, right? Or still, you know, was present far longer. But then other traditions of thought are kind of, you know, never made it, right? Because a lot of it is also very contingent, right? You know, somebody decides to become obsessed with a particular thinker and translate all of their work or what have you. So I think that, you know, that increasingly kind of fascinates me. And it goes back a long while. I mean, I remember years ago finding out that there was this like obscure follower of Schelling. Krause, I think was his name, who in the 19th century, like completely dominated, like the very conception of pedagogy in the university in like Colombia and and I think maybe even Venezuela, in any case, in, 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 the, in the Caribbean bit of, of, of Latin America, but, you know, who nobody remembers, right, in Germany or in much of Europe. So I think I find those, yeah, those histories kind of interesting also from a reflexive standpoint, right? Like knowing how contingent it is, who translated what, when, what audiences they found, how it circulated. And, you know, some of the work, for instance, with Siegel is based on, you know, somewhat mad wager, which is made possible by the immense intellectual generosity of the people working at Siegel and especially the editor uh, Naveen Kishor of proposing texts that have been completely buried or forgotten in Italy to uh, a contemporary Anglophone and hopefully more global public and seeing what happens, right? So that's, you know, that's a bit uh, the, the long version. So you've been teaching for a number of years in the UK before arriving in Vancouver at uh, Simon Fraser University, but you've spoken quite a bit critiquing the neoliberalization of higher education in the UK. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to you know what, what you and your colleagues have been experiencing in the UK in the university sector the past few years. Yeah, it's been uh, these um, uh, near, near on two decades. And again, especially the time from the financial crash and, you know, the real onset of austerity onwards, but also how that was prepared, right, by uh, new labor governments have been a real lesson, right? Like living inside this grim laboratory in uh, new managerialism and in marketization. Yeah, has been, you know, instructive, at times painful, often has been galvanizing at times, also in terms of the forms of resistance or efforts at resistance by colleagues and comrades in the in the UCU and the um, and the lecturers union by students and different you know waves of student mobilization, especially around the tripling of tuition fees back in the winter of 2010. So it's a very you know it's a complex phenomenon. Some of which, of course, replicates things that you've already experienced here and that in other you know scenarios are perhaps even more you know have accelerated even faster. But there has been something I think very damaging and, and dispiriting about the turn that this has taken in the United Kingdom. And I guess one could sort of periodize it or think of it in terms of a kind of sequence whereby I guess when I arrived, so this would have been, well, to do my doctorate in the late 90s, you know, like a year after, I guess, the establishment of uh, Tony Blair's uh, new labor and government, what you had was partly because of a credit driven upward business cycle or what have you, you had a kind of sense of a bringing in of marketizing and auditing and neoliberal mechanisms in a context of of 
the aim at increasing university at- attendance. So New Labour famously had this kind of 50% of high school leavers should get a college degree. There was quite a bit of money for research, both British and European, of course, at the time. And so I think a lot of academics, especially senior academics, senior research academics, basically accepted, right, this kind of bargain. So they accepted the bargain of uh, an increasing incursion of managerial auditing and metric mechanisms, because at the time, these allowed people to get more resources for their research, to have more time off, to have assistance or what have you, right? And this was quite a step change. I mean, I remember being told by somebody at Kent Law School that until the early 90s, this was at the time quite a Marxist law school, the department systematically refused to go for promotion because then they would become management, right? So, you know, these like 50, 60-year-old esteemed academics will just remain at the lecturer level or the senior lecturer level because otherwise they join the manager class, right? So this is a complete flip let's say, from kind of those mentalities. And then, of course, when the crisis and austerity hit, and also, of course, the much more intensely blinkered, conservative, purely nostalgic, and these days, you know, downright reactionary kind of culture war mentality of the conservatives became established then. And also, not least, more recently, the context of Brexit, right, which cut off a lot of contacts to European research funding and the like. This has created really a kind of untenable situation. And part of it is also a matter of the political economy of the university. I have a very, you know, if, if you want to read anything about this, the work of my friend Andrew McGettigan has been really wonderful in, in mapping that out. One of the things that happen is as a matter of compromise, the British state basically owns, right, to the student loan book. So students do not pay the money up front, they enter into debt, but this is a debt that's only supposed to be paid back once they pass a certain uh, threshold of income. And so they've created this whole system that is now really concocted to to fail at, at a purely fiscal level, right? 60, 70% of students, more so in certain subjects, let's say philosophy, media, theater, music, etc., will never pay back any of their fees because, you know, after 20 years or 25 years, I forget what the number is, of never reaching that level of income, which is, you know, uh, higher than the average income, they will default on it, right? And and therefore, so the, the, the state holds all of this massive, bad, you know, trillion, I don't know how much money, but, you know, massive, bad student debt, right? Which they're now trying to use, for instance, to police departments into, or to police universities into shutting departments or curtailing funding for departments that don't have income generating degrees, right? Like, or degrees that will lead predictably to students making enough money to pay all this back. And so this has created even more proliferation of even more invasive mechanisms, which are then also combined, right? So there's a kind of double game on the one hand, all of the complex neoliberal machinery to deal with this not very neoliberal situation, right, of a state that holds this vast amount of student debt, right? It's not banks uh, as such yet. Uh, And then on the other hand, especially in the past couple of years, in the wake of Brexit, of Johnson's, you know, super reactionary regime, also this accelerated kind of culture war scenario, right? So, you know, know, the supposed incursion of a kind of office for free speech so that, you know, you'll be obliged to let fascists speak at your university or what have you, all of these things are now created a kind of 
pincer movement, right? So of, of kind of austerity and reaction and a real crisis, right? Of funding of for, for universities, many of which, especially the weaker ones, so to speak, to use that language, are being put in a situation or have made bad choices to put themselves into a situation of making lots of people redundant. So uh, there's, of course, very inspiring struggles going on, but they're very rearguard struggles, right? They're very defensive, lesser evil struggles in this context, which has been rigged uh, to, you know, to make intellectual and pedagogic life kind of uh, impossible, right? So uh, let, let that be a warning, you know, whenever anyone introduces any <laughs> any new measure, you know, even if it's something as seemingly innocuous as, you know, the mandatory use of certain software for management or timetable, just think what that apparatus, right? <laughs> Dispositif <laughs> a la Foucault could do in the worst possible scenario, right? Like, as I think that that's what became really clear, all of the stuff that got introduced when things were not, you know, that critical or frightening, or indeed, for some people, there was a fairly buoyant time where they were making more money or, or having more, you know, research funding, etc. Just think of what those mechanisms can do when university funding is cut by 25%, right? Or, or when some super reactionary government comes into power at the federal or the provincial level, you know, I think that's the kind of, uh, the sort of dystopian stress test, right? That one has to do, I think, with everything that is introduced, especially in terms of management within the university, because once those mechanisms become normalized, it's extremely difficult to resist them, I think. And that's part of the point, right? Like part of the point of the auditing and, and managerial mechanisms is not just their kind of ideological naturalization, but just the sort of like materially indispensable character to the reproduction of the university and the way that you can't really get around them. So for instance, things like, you know, the ways in which research has been measured, right? First, the research assessment exercise and the research excellence framework work, etc., were brought in in a way that was made attractive to academics who thought that they were very productive, that they did a lot of research, that they, you know, etc., in this kind of competitive way, you know, my department is better than yours and all that. But once the funding dries out, then that's just used as a disciplinary mechanism to make people redundant. So you kind of like agreed to measure yourself for their future cuts, right? So all of that, you know, you have to kind of like think of yourself in a sort of situation of like, what would these things do in the moment that a university wants to make people redundant, right? Which, you know, given business cycles and capitalist crises is like something one, you know, should probably foresee and forecast. So, yeah, definitely seeing parts of this already unfold in uh, the Canadian context, uh, for sure. One of the questions I was going to ask you about was some more recent writing that you've been doing. I, I think it originally was an article in Boston Review, but I think you're, I don't know if you're extending it into a chapter or a or a book, but wanted to ask you about this notion of the returns of racial fascism in the contemporary moment and your kind of uh, reading and, mm. and thinking around that. Well, uh, you know, I suppose like, uh, I mean, not, not to uh, find a sort of recursive pattern, but yeah, I mean, I suppose if the work on fanaticism was responding to the events of 2003 and the cartographies one to the events of 2007-8, I guess... Events which, of course, have like very long and deep histories in their own right. I suppose wanting to test theories of fascism against this very peculiar, disturbing moment in which we found ourselves, you know, globally, from Modi to Duterte to Trump to the rise of the far right in Europe to uh, Brexit uh, and so on and so forth to Bolsonaro in Brazil. 
you know, myriad people have unsurprisingly had the same theoretical insights, not least because basically if there is anything such as critical theory, it is an effort to to think fascism as it emerges and to try to uh, forge, you know, some of the intellectual tools to uh, struggle against it. Now, I guess what I, uh, the first thing that I tried to do, which was in a, in a brief piece and in some talks, was to try to think about the ways, uh, what do we make of all the ways in which contemporary fascisms uh, or authoritarianisms, uh, and of course the naming is itself an issue, uh, what do we make about their analogies and disanalogies, right, with historical fascisms? Analogies which have to do with their mass basis, with their relationship to capitalist crisis, and with the ways in which efforts to simply think the present as a repetition of post-World War I period in uh, Italy, Germany, or for that matter, you know, Romania or, or Spain or Portugal, just doesn't, doesn't work. Whilst, nevertheless, a lot of those theories do help us to, to grasp things about, about the present, right? So, uh, you know, initially I kind of did that, and then I, I you know, tried to map these analogies and disanalogies, and I, and I tried to sort of propose this idea or notion of a, uh, what I call the late fascism, kind of riffing on Mandel's idea of late capitalism or the fact that Jameson talks about Adorno's work as a late Marxism. Try to use that to think, you know, what, what is it about also the, the kind of seemingly anachronistic or out of time, right, nature of some of these fascist fantasies and desires as they relate to the global present. But then I became more uh, convinced or struck, and, you know, this is obviously also in, in, in part in response to all of the global struggles against racist state violence and, and global debates about decolonization and the like, to really try to think through the resources provided by anti-colonial and, and black radical traditions of thought vis-a-vis fascism, right? Because in some sense, so many of the debates about the analogy and disanalogy of fascism were caught, right, in a, in a, in a purely European perimeter, uh, at least an intellectual perimeter, if not a kind of geographic and historical one. Uh, you know, that made me working through that material from George Padmore's writings about what he called the colonial fascism of the British Empire through to M. Césaire's political and poetic work on the kind of boomerang effect of colonialism in the genesis of European fascism itself, uh, all the way to the writings of, on, on fascism, the likes of W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, C.L.R. James, and then much more close to us, uh, the writings of the likes of Angela Davis and George Jackson, which I deal with at, at some greater length in that Boston Review piece. That made me convinced that in some sense, one kind of has to abandon, right, that analogical frame, which is an analogical frame that depends on the idea that there is something not just singular, which is uncontroversial, but entirely kind of exceptional in some sense isolated, right, about the phenomenon of inter-European uh, fascism, which of course involves bracketing out entirely the frighteningly visible influence of colonial and imperial history, but also, you know, indeed of the history of uh, white supremacy within the United States, right, in the genesis of Nazi and fascist uh, imaginaries, policies, and indeed even legal provisions, right, which 
you know, there's much scholarly work on, you know, how many of these were taken directly from the contemporary United States and from the provisions for segregation in the South and so on and so forth. And so therefore, instead of thinking, well, there's this one moment that happens in the interwar period, we call it Weimar, we call it, you know, European fascism or, you know, etc. And then how does this match or not match what is happening in 2016 to the present? It was instead a matter of thinking, well, what what if we expand that notion, you know, of of fascisms to processes and, and tendencies that have both a far longer history, you know, that goes back to to the forms of rule and violence and ideology that uh, undergird colonialism and racial capitalism, but also what what happens if we think of them as continuing after World War II, right? Which was, of course, perceived as a sort of magical cessation uh, of all things fascist by a certain kind of uh, ideology. And that is, I guess, what led me to, in a somewhat contrarian way, to to propose you know, that kind of hypothesis is that actually all of those people like Davis, Jackson, but, you know, there's also a lot of European versions of this in the far left, right? People who brought out the language of fascism in the wake of 68 and in the wake of the reaction to the world 60s, we're not, as is usually said in literature on fascism, uh, simply exaggerating or creating this boogeyman or using this term out of all proportion, but actually getting at something intellectually and politically and theoretically very uh, significant, right? Which is which is to think, you know, as, as David said, uh, Angela Davis says, of, of fascism as this process, right? As this process that can take very different forms that need not manifest itself in, in the guises that are familiar, right, or recognizable from a very specific interwar European history. And of course, you know, repetition is never, you know, an, an identity, right, in the, in the historical sense. So I think being sensitive to that is then what I, what I wanted to explore, both engaging in kind of reconstructing and recovering this history, also via figures like Cedric Robinson, who himself mapped out what he called black radical theories of fascism, but also seeing, you know, about their kind of applicability to to the present. And so that, yeah, and that's the kind of, it's, it's hopefully a, a short book that I'm working on, but I think that will really be, in a sense, the, the core of it, right? Developing further some of those arguments from that Boston Review piece and then the kind of companion piece that came out recently called Incipient Fascism, Black Radical Perspectives, where I just kind of kind of expand that somewhat more. And I think, you know, there's been there's been a lot of very interesting and important recent work on this theme. So if I can make any kind of contribution to that debate, I'll be more than uh, happy. Oh, fantastic. It's such a timely piece of work. Yeah, I wish it weren't, but... <laughs> yeah, it's, that's right. My last question to you was uh, going to be, you've landed now at Simon Fraser University. Can you just talk a little bit about what you'll be doing here while you're in Vancouver at, at SFU? I've come uh, as a visiting faculty at the Digital Democracies Institute. In fact, I have the uh, pleasure of presenting some somewhat connected work on fascism there a few months ago, specifically around this book, which is really in its own way, a kind of pioneering text right, on fascism and questions of communication, which is uh, Leo Lowenthal and Norbert Gutermann's book, Prophets of Deceit. Which Verso published recently. I did a uh, I did an introduction for, yeah. So that's been really you know I've, it's been a wonderful context, right, in which to think through these uh, things, including in our ongoing seminars. There's a, a lot of both in the institute, but also in terms of people affiliated and coming through. Really fascinating 
work being done on all of the all of the modalities of contemporary authoritarianism, reaction, and you know, new forms of racism, like circulate right, and are transformed and altered by their modes of circulation and communication through algorithms, through platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, and I've been teaching, um, now this is my second term, actually, both undergraduate and graduate students at the School of Communication. So last term course on uh, media and ideology, uh, which of course was uh, also a wonderful way of, of working through some of the same material, right, that I'm thinking through for this fascism book, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the writings of Stuart Hall, uh, Franz Fanon and uh, Adorno's very different writings on the radio and so on and so forth. And then this term I'm doing a grad seminar, which is basically an effort to bring the work that I did in cartographies into connection with contemporary debates around racial capitalism and race and representation. So the course is called Mapping Racial Capitalism. Mapping Capitalism was a course that I had at Goldsmiths, right? Out of which I, Jeff and I came up with a cartographies book. So that's what I'm doing now. And it's, you know, it's been really... It's been really great with all the constraints of doing these things by Zoom, but nevertheless, uh, I've really, uh, I've really gained a lot from it. So just, uh, just yesterday, we had a wonderful discussion about Cedric Robinson's critique uh, of black exploitation and what he called the misrepresentation of uh, of the politics of liberation and and Huey Newton's uh, praise of Melvin Van Peebles' uh, 1971 black exploitation classic, right? Sweet, sweet, backs badass song. And so thinking through those two things together, also discovering, right, as we were uh, talking about these things, these weird ways in which they they both, uh, and this only really came up with the seminar, so clearly for me, they both deal not just with question of, of capitalism, race, and representation, but actually make very, very significant remarks about the place of urban space and landscape, which I hadn't caught before, but which really resonated with a lot of the stuff that I was thinking about with Jeff and cartographies, including right in the in the Wolfen <laughs> chapter, you know, which was uh, very much about the ways in which these lateral perceptions, right, of the uh, city at the onset, right, of neoliberalism plays in these kind of fantastical sort of uh, narratives. So yeah, that's been that's been really great, and I'm really looking forward to also to to being at SFU in the <laughs> in the empirical Burnaby and downtown sense, and actually uh, seeing people and having an office and 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 all of those all of those are seemingly uh, you know distant experiences, but you know. Yeah, Alberto, thank you so much for joining us. We're really lucky and excited to have you here in Vancouver, and uh, thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Alberto Toscano. You can find links to Alberto's work and affiliations in the show notes, as well as a link to the full transcript of this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar. Thank you.